today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. They would mock him, they would beat him, they would abuse him. He was whipped, he was beaten, scourged with that cat of nine tails, with the pieces of metal and glass and any sharp kind of rocks, literally tearing his skin away from his bones. They say that he was abused so greatly, his face pummeled by fists, portions of his beard pulled out so badly that he was beyond recognition, completely physically exhausted, and then forced to carry his own cross to Calvary. How incredible is the love of God? In today's message, Pastor David helps paint a detailed picture of the extreme level of suffering that the cross inflicted on its victims. It was designed to slowly destroy the body in an excruciatingly painful way. Yet knowing all this, having a human body, Subject to all the pain that man can experience, Jesus willingly took the cup of his Father, passed to him. He did it out of a deep, immeasurable love for all mankind, including those who nailed him to that cross. Now here's Pastor David with today's message entitled, Wondrous, Wretched Cross. Roman Empire was the most powerful empire of its time. It expanded nearly all of the known world and the power that was wielded by Rome was unquestionable. The Caesars of the time, they were gods for all of Rome and all of her citizens. The Caesar and his representatives, they held the power of life and death. And just like you've probably seen on the movies, it was life a thumbs up or death a thumbs down. They had that power. And those that represented Caesar in the different areas and territories that Rome uh, held and, and had power over, they had that same kind of authority. Their word was law. Their authority was without question. Within the extent of the empire, whenever anyone was condemned to die, the cross was the most effective instrument of death. Its cruelty and its certainty was assured by the Roman soldiers who were tasked with that issue of putting someone on the cross and having them die. And if that Roman soldier or that Roman troop that was in charge of that failed in their task, they would be the ones that were then nailed to the cross. In the days of Rome, there was no other power known to mankind more powerful than the power of Rome. And there was no death more vile and more heinous than death on the cross. The Romans didn't invent the cross. The Persians did. But by the time it got to Rome, they had improved it so much that it became very, very effective. Their own actions, though, their own actions and and, and directions and purposes 
for execution, though, would change everything because very soon the cross was to be the new power, more powerful than Rome. The cross would shake the world. It would be the cruelty and the severity of the cross that would bring about the offer of redemption to all of mankind. And you see, Rome didn't have a clue about that when they were using it as a point of crucifixion. Luke tells us here in Luke chapter 23, beginning down in verse 26, we've already gone over the trials of Christ before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate and Herod, and then Pilate again. Pilate finally said, I wash my hands, this man is innocent. You go and do with him as you will. He gave them the authority and the ability for the Jews to bring about that crucifixion, but it was Rome that crucified him. In verse 26 of Luke 23, we read that now as they led him, led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it before Jesus. Jesus was condemned to die on the cross. That Roman instrument of execution that was used, again, for the most atrocious of crimes. The, 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 the very word excruciating, because that's the kind of pain that came from being crucified, excruciating actually comes from the word crucifying. When we look at this, death on the cross was designed, it was purposed to be as slow and as painful and as gruesome, and also to be very public. It was also designed to be an absolute humiliation on those that were being crucified. Artists through the years, out of their reverence for our Lord, painted the Lord Jesus on the cross with a loincloth or some kind of covering. But normally when they were crucified, they were stripped bare, bare to the world. And even adding to all the pain and the agony was a humiliation. But believe me, the humiliation, I believe, became way, way secondary to all the pain and the anguish that they were going through. As a means of a deterrent, the, the victims many times were left on display even after their death sometimes for days on end. To make the crucifixion even more detestable and more of a deterrent for crime, Rome often would put them on the highest place visible within that area so that all the travelers as well as all the citizens living within that community could see what's going on up on that hill. And they said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go that direction. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to change my ways. They'd be left on that cross for so long many times and to just increase the grossness of it, even the birds would come down and begin to pick and pluck off the flesh of those that were hanging on the cross. Most of our earlier understanding has been that the cross was in the shape of a lowercase t, like the ones that we have on the wall here. Again, where the, the, the horizontal bar going across was located on a, on a portion of the upright. But through additional studies, through archaeological discoveries, we find out that very likely during the time of Christ, it could have been the cross in the shape of a capital T, to where the crossbar was actually sitting on top of the upright post, that crossbar being called the patibulum in the, in the Latin. It had a recessed socket in it. So once the victim was nailed onto the patibulum, that crossbar, 
he, through his body as well as the, the, the bar itself, the Roman soldiers would lift all of that up and then drop it into place on that upright. Again, in Jesus' case, he carried that patibulum weighing in the neighborhood of 100 pounds as he headed to that place called Golgotha or Calvary, the place of the skull. And again, as they got there, the condemned person would then be nailed to it and it would be then lifted up and attached to the upright. And again, since the Romans used this form of execution so often throughout all of their empire, the horrors of crucifixion touched the whole known world. As a matter of fact, Cicero, one of Rome's own politicians, a philosopher, an orator, he described crucifixion this way. He said it is a most cruel and disgusting punishment and suggested that the very mention of the cross should be far removed from, only, uh, from not only from every Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. And yet, as vile, as contemptible, and disgusting as this particular instrument of execution was, for the Christian, it became an instrument of our redemption. That's why we put crosses on the wall. That's why we wear crosses, because it's a reminder for us, not the vileness, not the, 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 the grossness of it, but of the sweetness of redemption that was purchased on the cross. A hundred years ago, a fellow by the name of George Bennard wrote these words that are probably familiar to most all of you this morning. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. It was the emblem of suffering and shame. But I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and to sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I'll cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. As Jesus left the area of the praetorium where Pilate had given that final sentence of execution, he was delivered up to the Jewish leaders. He had spent the night prior ministering to his disciples on into the early mornings. And in the early mornings, remember, they had gone over to Gethsemane and there he prayed those intense times of prayer, the, the, the sweat and blood dripping down off of his forehead in great drops. And then in the early pre-dawn came the arrest as the mob came out and took him and, and, and drug him and, and he faced the abuse then of not only the, the Jews and the Jewish leaders, but then also the abuse of the Roman soldiers. And understand, having absolutely no sleep as dawn came, he began having the trial there at the Sanhedrin, then from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod to Herod to Pilate. And each time he went to a different Roman setting, they would mock him, they would beat him, they would abuse him. He was whipped, he was beaten, scourged with that 
cat of nine tails with the pieces of metal and glass and any sharp kind of rocks literally tearing his skin away from his bones. They say that he was abused so greatly, his face pummeled by fists, portions of his beard pulled out so badly that he was beyond recognition. Completely, physically exhausted and then forced to carry his own cross to Calvary. As he's walking down the way that they now call it the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the, the, the way of sorrow. He would have walked by hundreds, if not thousands, of pilgrims who had come into Jerusalem for the celebration. They came for a celebration. And now here, in the midst of all of their joy and excitement, comes a parade of Roman soldiers followed by three criminals who are going to be executed that day, that day of all days, that day of feast and, and festivities. Jesus and these two criminals. And as they came, Somewhere along the way, there stood a man by the name of Simon, a man of Cyrene, a coastal city that was in, in North Africa, some 800 miles away. Some believe that Simon was, was a man, a, a black man, and, and for whatever reason, to be a part of that, again, taking on, because of the Romans forcing him to, taking upon himself that portion of the cross that Jesus was having to carry. Why Simon was there, had he traveled from Cyrene to, to Jerusalem for the feast, or had he moved to Israel sometime earlier, we really don't know. But this one thing I believe that we can be pretty certain of, the cross of Jesus was going to impact his life, and his life, I believe, would be changed forever because he was at this particular place at this particular time. I believe, again, those God incidences that he works within our lives. To the onlookers, it would have seemed like just one more action of the Romans trying to humiliate the Jews as, again, he grabbed, they grabbed this man who had absolutely nothing to do with the crime, and yet he was now under orders to carry the cross of Christ. And yet what seemed to be a humiliation, I believe, probably came into a life-changing experience. All three of the synoptic gospels speak of not only his name, but also his nationality, Simon of Cyrene, Simon the Cyrenian. Again, Mark gives us a little bit more of a clue as to the man and the connection of that man to the believers and to the first century church. As he says, this was Simon of Cyrene, you, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He, he was saying it's somebody that you guys know. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. So well known somehow among the first, the early century church. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he writes in Rome, he sends greetings to one named Rufus. Could that have been Simon's son? Very possibly. Speculation, I understand, but it's interesting nonetheless that that particular name Paul brings out. Whatever the background, whatever the connection, this man was laid hold of by the Romans and then they laid upon him the cross of Christ. Some bear the cross in shame. Some bear it in dedication and memory, even as jewelry right now. But Simon bore it out of compulsion by these Roman soldiers. There's no doubt that Simon had been in Jerusalem that early morning to get the full effect of the ceremony and of the celebrations, full benefit of the Passover time. He had come for that. He had come for religious purposes. But in the midst of religious devotion, he came face to face with the Savior. 
Although we can't be certain personally, I believe that we're probably going to see this man at the great wedding feast, the one who bore the cross of Christ. But you know what? Each one of us are called to bear a cross, an instrument of death. Why are we called to bear the cross? Because we are called to remember that we're to die daily to ourselves. To die daily to, to, to the desires of the flesh. To die daily to the pull and the allurements of the world. To die daily to those things that don't bring glory and honor to our Lord. Simon was moved that day. I believe that he was moved from religious devotion to the reality of salvation. Well, as that process moved, or the procession moved through the city, uh, Luke tells us in verse 27, a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, breasts which have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? You need to understand professional mourners were, they were active in that day. It was a regular and a thriving business in the Middle East, even today they are. But that's not what we find here. It's not professional mourners. I believe that throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see within the gospel, there were many women that were involved in his ministry. I believe that many of those women were right there in the midst of that crowd. Those women played a huge part in the support work of the ministry. And I believe not only those women were there, but probably women who were there in Jerusalem this week as Jesus ministered there in the temple, perhaps some that he had ministered to, perhaps some that he had healed, perhaps some that he had delivered. They were there in the midst of that crowd and they began to mourn and weep because they saw the suffering and the, the sure death that was about to be experienced by our Lord. And yet in the midst of all of his suffering, in the midst of his impending death, Jesus had compassion even on these women. He turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Because Jesus knew the consequences of the actions that were about to take place. Because Israel as a whole had rejected the Savior, they would have a severe cost to pay. And the whole nation, unfortunately, would pay it. As he said, for indeed, days are coming. I believe that Jesus was speaking a, a dual prophetic message, which we find quite often in the prophet's words. A prophecy that would take place fairly quickly and yet a further more complete prophecy that would happen. The prophecy that would happen fairly quickly would happen within about 40 years of these events because in 70 AD the Roman soldiers under Titus came with several legions of Roman soldiers and they not only destroyed the temple but they ransacked and destroyed all of Jerusalem. They literally ran the Jews out of Israel. They were no longer a nation uh, of, of Jews. The, the land no longer belonged to them. From 70 AD, there had not been a, a Jewish people holding, again, the authority within that land. There was not a nation of Israel that had their property that they lived in. They were scattered all over the known world. 
But then I believe also that he's speaking of that time, that, that, that great and that final judgment day, the period of tribulation, such as not been seen on the earth before nor will be after. There, there won't be a single city, there, there won't be a single country that won't be turned upside down during that time that is yet to take place. All of creation is going to be shaken to the very core. Jesus knew that both of these events were in the future. One that was going to happen very soon, while the other was at a distant time yet to come. He knew them both to be a great time of suffering and trials. Even being caught in a landslide or an earthquake would have been more preferable for these women to face than to face the Roman soldiers during that time of the Jewish annihilation. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 32, there are also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand, the other on his left. Well, as Jesus and these other criminals and the Roman guard reached the top of Golgotha, they were in plain sight for all those in Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas to be able to view what's going on on top of that hill. The crossbar would have been laid down on the ground. The prisoner then would have been thrown down upon that crossbar. One Roman soldier taking this arm, the other Roman soldier taking this arm, stretching them out to the optimum length. And then another Roman soldier or two driving a spike within the hands of the victim. In the past, we've looked and thought of being driven within the palm of the hand. But again, archaeological finds and greater understanding realize that those spikes were probably drawn into the wrist area. Within the Roman and the Greek culture, the wrist was a part of the hand and considered to be part. And plus, the bones that are there would be able to support the weight. The great pain of that, take for a moment right now, if you would, take from one hand and press as hard as you can right into that area. And you can see the, the pain that could be driven right there through the nerve. Can you imagine then a spike as big as your thumb or your forefinger being driven right through that and then your weight being pulled down upon that? It used several men after they nailed them to the cross. Probably on each end lifting up, a few on the body lifting up the victim as they set him. And again, that patibulum being set and dropped into place on that upright. And then while they were still supporting his body, lifting him up some, they would place one foot over the other and drive a nail right through the ankle area of both feet, holding them securely in place. Some say that there was also a, a, a saddle or at least a a a, a, a a board or a rod that stuck out about the place of the groin that at least there'd be some ease, but in that kind of a condition, there was no ease in resting on that kind of a saddle. The pain, the agony, the screams, the cries, I believe they could have been heard throughout the entire area. You can't endure that much pain without crying out in the midst of it. The humiliation of it would have been the least of their concerns but that prolonged, that continual, that extreme pain would have been almost too much to bear. Oh, the old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, the old rugged cross so despised by the world, the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine. In the midst of it all, he has concern for you and I. Because hanging there in the fullness of his exhaustion, the fullness of his suffering and his pains, first words that come out we see in verse 34. 
Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. David will continue teaching through the Gospel of Luke next time. Now we want to encourage you to become a Facebook friend with us. Log on to theopenword.com. You can also subscribe to The Open Word podcast at theopenword.com or search for The Open Word in the iTunes store. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to The Open Word podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to theopenword.com and subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. Again, to become our Facebook friend and to access the archive of messages, log on to theopenword.com. Now here's Tracy with information about how you can help partner with us. We all know it's vitally important to support the local church, the place we call home. But it's also very important to support missionaries. Have you ever considered that The Open Word is a missionary work? It is. We need your support as we share God's Word over the airwaves. Please prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word. Go to theopenword.com and click on the support option in the main menu. We invite you to join us again for the next study as David shares insights with us from the Gospel of Luke. That's next time on The Open Word.